Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research's Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organised by the Bassi Study Group for Minority History. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Centre for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. On this episode, Professor Molly Green at Princeton University talks to us about minorities in the Ottoman Empire's classical period. Molly, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a little about yourself and how you became interested in this particular area of history? Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, a lot of it was really quite uh, accidental. I, I uh, went to Greece as an undergraduate, and like many, um, actually probably millions of people before me, fell in love with the with the physical beauty of the country. But unlike most people, I was never interested in the classical past, but in the modern period. Uh, so after uh, university, I lived in Greece for, for four years. Um, and completely, I have to admit, I missed the Ottoman past. My orientation was very modern at that time. Um, Turkey and the Ottoman past was really very invisible in Greece, and I wasn't looking for it. Um, then I went off to graduate school and left the Greek world behind with some regret because I thought studying modern Greece was simply too narrow. Um, and I had simultaneously been pursuing an interest in the Middle East and studying Arabic. Uh, and I went to Near Eastern Studies at Princeton with the idea of studying the modern Middle East. And a couple of things happened. Um, first, it turned out that there was an outstanding program in Hellenic Studies at Princeton, uh, which I didn't even know about. <laughs> and the director of the program, which had just gotten started, Dimitri Gornikas, uh, I remember he said to me, he, a Greek, was the first person who said to me, you have to study Turkish. And I said, why would I study Turkish? And he said, because there's this whole Greco-Turkish world out there that people aren't working on. <laughs> And I said, oh, I kind of mulled that over. And then as just background to the modern Middle East, I took a course um, on the Ottoman Empire with Jamal Kapadar, who was then at Princeton. Um, and a light bulb went off uh, that I could study this, um, uh, the Greek world within a larger context uh, um, than the nation state of Greece, within the context of this vast and long-lasting empire. Um, and then I found that I found the Hellenic world pre-the nation state actually more interesting, and I went back and back in, in time. So it, it really happened at the uh, at the graduate level, and I've been, you know, very happy um, teaching and researching about this um, this vast Hellenic world with um, you know all sorts of links to you know even the present today. For the benefit of our listeners, what was the Ottoman Empire, and why has it been described as having no minorities before eighteen hundred? Yeah, well, the Ottoman Empire, uh, I would say, uh, had no minorities before the 19th century because uh, because it was an empire. Um, empires are generally described, and I subscribe to this, as, as uh, polities that are um, expansionist. And as they expand, um, they, main dis- they maintain distinction and hierarchy. Um, 
every time they incorporate new communities. Um, throughout history, most people um, have lived in political units that did not pretend to govern a single people, and that certainly accurately describes the Ottoman Empire. Nation states, by contrast, are based on the idea of a single people in a single territory as a unique political community. Uh, the nation state proclaims the commonality of its people, while the concept of empire presumes that different people within the polity will be governed differently. Um, and this patchwork of people explains why there were no minorities in the Ottoman Empire. Um, and why, to bring it to my own work, it's wrong to think of the Greek Orthodox prior to the 19th century uh, as a minority. And another point to bear in mind is that for a minority to exist, there has to be a majority. Uh, and there was no majority either. Uh, and I say that, of course, the Muslims were a demographic majority. But majority implies the idea of representation. And in this case, that would be the Sultan as representative of the empire's Muslim population. But of course, the Sultan was an, it was an imperial ruler. This wasn't a democracy. Um, and he didn't represent anyone. Um, the Sultan expected loyalty. And in exchange, he, uh, he provided uh, protection, at least theoretically. Right, so, for instance, my students are always surprised. There's a series of very interesting firmans or imperial orders uh, published years ago by um, Uriel Tate, I think, about um, um, disputes over buildings in, uh, in Jerusalem, this in the 16th century. Uh, and you see the Sultan intervening on behalf of, of Christians uh, to protect their right to a church um, against Muslim attempts to, um, uh, um, to close down the church. Uh, it's very, very hard to imagine the Israeli state today intervening on behalf of, of, of Palestinians uh, because the Israeli state represents uh, the Jewish nation, the Israeli nation, however you want to define it. Uh, the Ottoman Sultan reserved to himself the right to adjudicate uh, amongst the various groups because he's, <laughs> he's the Sultan. Um, the major axes of differentiation in the empire enshrined in law were three. Uh, the first was religion. Muslims and non-Muslims were ruled differently, with the former being favored. Uh, the second was the divide between the ruling class, which collected taxes, uh, and the taxpayers, um, Muslim and non-Muslim alike, who, of course, were um, in the majority. Um, finally, they were free and enslaved. But these were not the only distinctions. Uh, there were a myriad of other distinctions. Uh, the families who helped the Ottomans conquer the European provinces, for example, held on to their special status for many generations. Uh, the Roma population was always taxed as a group, regardless of religious affiliation. Tax exemptions were granted to those performing special services, uh, and so on and so forth. So this patchwork of special arrangements is why thinking in terms of majority and minority is, is misleading, which isn't to say that the, the Sultan, of course, every ruler um, um, uh, has an association with a religious tradition. Uh, and this was a, a, an Islamic empire in the sense that uh, the state uh, supported uh, and the Sultan acted within mostly um, the, the Muslim tradition, um, but that doesn't translate into majority and minority. Thinking a bit about the subject of Greece in particular, what was the significance of the Hellenic people within this wider empire? Yeah, <clears throat> um, I think here we have to un underline first and foremost, above and beyond anything else, um, the ecumenical patriarchate. Um, if we talk about the significance of the Hellenic people for the Ottomans, as opposed to the other way around, right? What did the Ottomans mean for the, for the Greeks? Um, and I say that because the ecumenical patriarchate was a vital institution 
uh, in helping the Ottomans rule the empire, and particularly its European provinces, where Christians were always, were always demographically uh, superior. Um, I say this because even in the wake of the Ottoman conquest of the Balkans, the church continued to control a vast clerical bureaucracy and a great deal of property. It collected taxes on both its personnel and on its property and turned over a portion of those taxes to the sultan. Um, it's interesting, there's a, there's a moment in the late 16th century when the legal basis on which monasteries continue to exist is, is potentially threatened by a reinterpretation of um, Islamic and uh, sultanic law. I won't go into the details. Um, and uh, there's the possibility that the monasteries on the peninsula of Manathos could be dissolved. And, um, and the monks write to the sultan and say, you know, if you do this, we will, we will scatter to the four corners of the earth and no one will be here to cultivate the land. And the sultan was like, all right, maybe we can adjust things a bit. <laughs> because until the 19th century, until I think the second half of the 19th century, it's safe to say, there were always too few people for the land, right, as opposed to later. You need to keep people on the land. Um, uh, and, the, uh, and the church and monasteries and people working on monastic estates were, were, were vital um, for Ottoman revenues. Um, one common characteristic of empires, and the Ottomans certainly share this, is that they need the skills and knowledge and authority of people from the conquered society, elites who could gain from cooperation. Um, and the church as an institution certainly performed that function for the Ottomans. Right? In many ways, they showed the Ottomans how things were done, um, particularly in the, in the Balkan provinces. Uh, there are countless uh, imperial orders to provincial authorities commanding them to allow church personnel uh, to collect taxes and not stand in their way. Uh, the church was not the only one, neither within Christian society nor within the empire as a whole. It was not the only institution, uh, but it was certainly one of the most important and one of the most long-lasting. Of course, the ecumenical patriarchate uh, is still in Istanbul today. Um, it's common to speak of Fatih Mehmed, the conqueror of Constantinople in 1453, as granting this authority to the new patriarch. And this is true. Uh, but it's also the case that the, for many years before, before 1453, uh, the church, faced with the rapidly shrinking territory of the Byzantine Empire, instituted new policies and engaged in some very adroit diplomacy in order to extend its authority outside and beyond the territory of Byzantium. This was a very significant change since empire and church had always been seen as synonymous in Byzantium. The church had had to watch during the Byzantine centuries as the Serbs and the Bulgarians established their own patriarchates. Now several energetic patriarchs in the second half of the 14th century were able to take advantage of the, of the difficulties of the Serbs and the Bulgarians due to the Ottoman advance. For example, the defeat of the Serbs at the Battle of Maritza in 1371 was not simply a story of the Ottomans and the Serbs. In Constantinople, the patriarch used the defeat to bring the Serbian church back under his jurisdiction. Similarly, in 1393, after the Ottoman capture of Tarnovo in today's Bulgaria, the ecumenical patriarch brought that church, too, back into the, into the fold. An independent Bulgarian church would not be established again until 1870. So by these actions in the 14th century, the ecumenical patriarch, patriarchate put itself in a position of strength uh, a good half century before the fall of, uh, of Constantinople. Um, Uh, let me just say a word about Muslim-Christian relations, which uh, uh, the relationship of ordinary Christians and Muslims, which of course is a, a vast and complicated um, subject. Uh, I'm just going to relay one anecdote to you, which I think um, uh, I particularly value because it shows how Christians and Muslims lived both in close proximity 
right, inhabiting the same world, uh, but also the underlying tensions uh, in that relationship. Uh, and scholars have pointed out that because religious difference was enshrined ideologically as the most important difference in the empire, um, social problems, social tensions were always understood uh, in religious terms. So this is an anecdote of, um, uh, um, from a collection of books about neo-martyrs uh, put together by um, uh, Greek authors in the, in the 18th century about people who died for the faith. I can say more about that if you want, but that's just for background. So this is a story from, so we are at the end of the 17th century, it's August, and a goldsmith named Angelis, uh, he and his friends are celebrating in Istanbul uh, a religious festival connected to the Virgin Mary. The group of celebrants included both Christians and Muslims. This was very, very common in the empire. And the Muslims were recent converts to Islam. Right? And, and conversion to Islam is not limited to one period. It's going on throughout the, throughout the centuries, sometimes greater, sometimes lesser. So carried away by the festivities, the friends, Christians and Muslims, decided to exchange outfits. And Angelis, the, the Christian, ended up wearing the headgear of a Muslim friend, which was interpreted in the empire as you have now converted you put on the headgear. Uh, um, the next day, those very same friends, the Muslims, denounced him to the authorities, saying that since he had put on a turban, he was now a Muslim. So Angelis uh, refused to embrace Islam, therefore he was an apostate, uh, and, was, uh, and was executed. So in this, in this tragic story, we see both the easy camaraderie that could exist between Christians and Muslims, in this case because the former had only recently declared their allegiance to a new religion and clearly still had ties to their own life. At the same time, such close proximity was fraught with danger for both. Uh, what seems like an astonishing about face on the part of the Muslims is rendered somewhat more comprehensible by the fact that at the end of the 17th century in Istanbul, an Islamic revivalist movement known as the Qadi Zadali um, was still very, very, very powerful. And this is speculation, but it seems plausible that one day after the festivities, maybe they had a lot to drink the day before, uh, the Muslims uh, must have worried about the price they might have to pay for attending a Christian festival with Christian friends. And of course, for the Christian, the vulnerability was, was even greater. So I think this, this close contact but underlying tension is, um, uh, is uh, a very enlightening uh, way to think about Christian-Muslim relations. In the countryside, in my opinion, things were more relaxed, uh, but this is in the imperial capital. Fascinating. And um, how, just briefly, how did Greece's revival as a modern nation state affect this very convoluted dynamic? Yeah, it's only in recent years that the Greek Revolution and the establishment of the Greek state has been integrated into Ottoman history, uh, an omission that now looking back seems remarkable, right? The point of view from Ottoman history as well, like this, uh, this piece of territory is no longer part of the Ottoman Empire, so it's it's not interesting to us. Um, uh, but actually, a lot of people are working now on the effect of the Greek Revolution on, uh, on the Ottoman state. Um, and the argument is that the 19th, and I, I find it very convincing, that the 19th century, Ottoman, uh, 19th century Ottoman history, especially the history of the Tanzimat, as the um, reforms are known, um, cannot be properly understood without connecting them to the Great War of Independence, something that has been sorely lacking in the earlier classical histories of the Tanzimat period. Um, what, what scholars like Shukru Ilijak and others have shown is that the first loss of territory to a national revolution, and it took a while for the Ottoman ruling elite to understand that it was a national revolution, triggered a very wide-ranging set of reforms in the empire. 
perhaps one of one of the most one of the most uh, uh, one of those of the most long-lasting importance um, was the uh, perceived need to create a self-mobilizing proto-citizen. Right, and here we start to move more towards this majority-minority um, um, paradigm. In other words, from now on, the Ottomans would move beyond the rather loose exchange of loyalty for, for, for protection and attempt to tie its subjects more closely to the state and its projects. There is debate as to what extent this attempt included all of the Sultan's subjects, regardless of religious or ethnic, uh, religion or ethnicity. Right? Some people say this really became a state for the Muslims as early as the 1820s. Others say as late as 1912. There was still the possibility for a multinational, multi-religious Ottoman Empire. That's a huge debate in the 19th century. So there's debate about to what extent this attempt included all of the Sultan's subjects, but certainly at the time of the revolt in 1821, uh, there was an explicit appeal to the Muslims of the empire as Muslims against the infidel Christians. Uh, the Sultan tried to, or, to arm ordinary Muslim subjects, um, Anatolians mostly, with an appeal to what can actually be called patriotism, uh, or rather new concept, uh, but this failed spectacularly. <laughs> People weren't interested in going and fight the Greeks, and the Sultan, um, Sultan Mahmud had to fall back on the Albanian mercenaries that he had been relying on since at least 1750, with disastrous results. Uh, once the revolution was concluded and the state of Greece was established in 1830, um, he and subsequent sultans turned with determination uh, to the project of creating the citizen soldier, uh, something that eventually succeeded. Um, I had mentioned that the Greek revolution has until recently uh, not been treated as part of Ottoman history. Similarly, until recently, the conventional narrative of the Ottoman period in Greek history reaches its terminus in 1821. Greek history is then treated, from then on, treated as the history of the nation state of Greece. The Ottomans appear only as military foes as the Greek state tries to extend the border uh, of its own um, fledgling state. Uh, this approach, too, has been challenged in recent years. What we realize now is that many citizens of the new uh, nation state, which occupied a small and rather poor territory at the southern tip of the Balkan Peninsula, um, many of these citizens chose to emigrate to the Ottoman Empire. This was due not only to the relative poverty of the state, but also due to the fact that the Greek state, as with other European nations before it, was able to negotiate a favorable status for its citizens in the empire. Thus, they could enjoy the benefits of the economic opportunities in the empire at a time when trade was booming, uh, while enjoying a protected diplomatic status. The Greek state, too, was happy to extend its citizenship to Christians living in the empire, people who had never set foot in Greece, um, as part of his expansionist policy. And of course, this was, uh, this was extremely upsetting for the Ottomans. Returning again to the theme of the impact of the Greek Revolution on the Ottoman Empire, uh, the scholar Berke Terunolu has argued that the Ottoman project of developing an Ottoman nationality had its origins not, as is usually seen, in a general imitation of European norms, but rather from the very real problem of estranged subjects that is, Christian subjects of the Sultan who had taken up Greek or Russian um, citizenship. Um, in short, Greek and Ottoman history remain very tied up with each other uh, long past the revolution of 1821. Um, in my current uh, project, which is a uh, history of um, this longstanding trope of, of Christian flight to the, to the mountains, um, uh, I was interested to see that, that after 1821, um, uh, these uh, migratory patterns to Istanbul, right? As, as people sort of would 
would um, spend six months out of the year in the imperial capital because you couldn't um, make a living 12 months out of the year in the mountains. Um, these, migratory, these migratory patterns um, continued and even intensified. You mentioned a Christian flight to the mountains as well as um, issues about, um, about subjects being willing to die for their faith. Um, could you tell us a bit more about this particular episode? Um, yeah, this is this is um, this Christian flight to the mountains is both a um, a popular trope across much of the Balkans. I mean, I mean, ordinary people will talk about it, uh, as well as a thesis put forward uh, by historians, almost all of them Balkan historians themselves, um, writing about the Christian populations in the Balkans. Um, you see this in. Um, Bulgarian, um, Romanian, uh, Greek uh, um, historiography, less so in the case of, of, of uh, let's say, Bosnia, which is interesting. Cause, anyway, um, So this argument posits that the early centuries of Ottoman rule brought about a massive displacement of Christian populations um, from the fertile plains to the mountainous regions, while the conquerors themselves settled in the more fertile lowlands. Um, this is actually not a trope that's limited to the Ottoman period, although it has, you know, particularly sort of nationalist overtones then. But you can read about similar things about the effect of the uh, of the Roman conquest of the Balkan world, right? That the Albanians or the Romanians, who are, you know, they are they are the, the they are the original peoples who fled to the mountains while the Romans were in the uh, in the plains. Um, uh, and this is this is more generally sort of how people think about. Uh, mountains, right, as, pla- uh, um, as, uh, as as places that people flee to. And certainly in the case of, uh, of uh, um, how this functions in the Greek world, um, flight and the mountain as a refuge is, is a part and parcel of this point of view, especially at the popular level. Still today in Greece, uh, today uh, people will tell you that they during the Ottoman period they were free up in the mountains, a place where they say the Turk never dared to set foot. Uh, but we actually have no studies, however, of mountainous spaces as such um, in the Ottoman Empire. I mean, there are studies of people who are in the mountains, but without talking about the, the mountains as, 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 as sort of as, as significant. Um, although the empire itself was extremely mountainous, um, a recent GIS study uh, puts the empire to, empire's topography as 74% mountainous, uh, making it one of the most uh, mountainous empires uh, in world history. Um, so anyway, this is what my current um, research is about, with a focus on the Pindus Mountains of Western Greece, um, and sort of challenging this idea of refuge, flight, remoteness, isolation. Um, and one thing I'm already certain of, the mountains may have seemed remote, but that does not mean they were not connected to the larger world. Uh, I recently published an article on a monastery built in the Pindus in the middle of the 16th century. Of course, this monastery, like all monasteries, presented itself as a retreat from the world. Um, considering that it was in the mountains, one could say that it was a double retreat from the Muslim population in the plains and from the secular world. Um, in fact, it is clear that the monastery was established, at least in part, uh, to develop and protect a route across the mountains. Uh, in addition, it quickly came under the control of the patriarch in Istanbul, um, thus indicating that this infrastructure project um, had the endorsement uh, of the imperial capital. Um, so this whole sort of flight to the mountains is... Um, uh, for me, within the, Greek, the context of what is the territorially Greece today, um, is the subject of my current um, research. And, and, and by the way, the um, um, you know we were speaking about this earlier. 
uh, British officers serving in Greece and Albania in World War II always talked about going into this um, traditional mountain world, you know, that, that, that you know, had been closed off for centuries, and, and it's, simply, uh, it's simply not the case. And thinking about this in our current context, and also maybe relating back to your earlier experiences of living and working in Greece and the Republic of Turkey, um, how is this period of Ottoman rule remembered in modern-day Greece and Turkey, if at all? Yeah, um, right. So um, uh, it's difficult to answer for Turkey because um, uh, the, uh, um, there is a large-scale revisionist project going on now um, in Turkey. Uh, and it's sort of it, it's sort of emphasis and which parts of the empire, which time period it's emphasizing, um, changes is changing so fast. So it's it's a very um, um, so under under um, Erdogan a sort of um, you know certain sacrosanct um, uh, um, you know founding myths of the modern Turkish state that it was that it was completely. Um, uh, uh, divorced from the Ottoman Empire, that the Ottoman uh, Empire, what, what did somebody say? In the end, uh, in the end, all the peoples of the Ottoman Empire uh, rejected the Ottoman Empire, including finally even the Turks. Um, and this is, um, this is changing, uh, whether it's um, from, the, uh, from Erdogan re-implementing certain ceremonials that, that the Sultan's engaged in, like, you know, sponsoring, um, you know, evening meals during Ramadan, so sort of acting in a sultanic fashion. The use of, of Ottoman motifs, let's say, the, you know, the Ottoman tulip in, in subway stops. So there's a general um, um, revival of, uh, of the Ottoman past. I'm not saying it's historically accurate, it's often kitschy, but there's, there's a, um, a new positive attitude, at least on the part of the state, um, and some part of the population towards the Ottoman past, as well as um, you know, but the, but the, the the period that continues to be most controversial is is the teens and the nineteen twenties, and um, Erdogan is trying to um, you know he can't dislodge Ataturk from the pantheon, but he's trying to somehow make him less anti-Ottoman by revising certain key aspects of his. Story that in fact he had more loyalty to the Sultan than we think. So this is this is what's going on in um, Turkey. Changes to the iconography of the of the um, uh, cemetery at Gallipoli. You know, I could go on and on. In Greece, there's there's um, a split. I would say amongst the the vast majority of the population, um, um, it kind of reminds me of this country. I mean, people have of the U.S. People have done so much to kind of. Um, rewrite the history, let's say, of slavery and of race um, uh, in the U.S., but the vast majority of the population is, is completely unswayed by all of this historical work. Um, uh, you know, so, so some of the things that are, some, some of the textbooks that are written today, you know, they could have been written in 1945. And I would say amongst the Greek population, generally, that is still the case. Um, people still believe in the most ridiculous kind of myths like the supposed secret schools um, where where Greeks were you know secretly taught you know the Greek language this completely misunderstands you know the Ottoman Empire you know, in the age of nationalism education is a weapon it was not <laughs> the Ottomans had no interest in suppressing Greek education it wasn't education for the nation it was it was uh, education to be to be a good Christian um, this coexists with since the 1980s um, 
you know, as an attempt to get beyond this kind of restrictive view of, of Greek history, um, a very, very lively scholarly scene in Greece. Uh, and Greek scholars now learn Ottoman Turkish. They go to the Ottoman archives. Um, and, uh, you know, despite all of the economic pressures and all the difficulty that Greece has had, um, uh, excellent work on Ottoman history uh, uh, is, is being written today in Greece, which was not the case when I first went in the early 1980s. And finally, where can people go to learn more about this fascinating topic? Um, well, at the risk, I, I don't usually um, recommend my own books, but University of Edinburgh Press. Yeah, yeah, or is it Edinburgh University Press? And I think it's Edinburgh University Press. Um, embarked on a project probably a good 10 years ago now, if, if not um, um, earlier, of, of writing a continuous history of the Greeks from antiquity to the present. Um, I wrote the volume on the um, Ottoman period and Tom uh, up until 1770, and then um, uh, Tom Gallant um, took over uh, for the 19th and into the 20th century and, 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 and wrote a book about the 19th century that includes the Ottoman Empire, right, rather than the usual 1821. It's just so, um, so it's the Edinburgh history of the Greeks. I forget what our volumes are. They're the later volumes. I have the volume um, on, uh, uh, on the Ottoman period. And then Tom Gallant has the volume on uh, the 19th century, I think going up to, um, to 1922, uh, which is when the Irredentist dreams of, of Greece died. So th those are two, I think, quite accessible um, histories of the, uh, of the Greeks during this period. Molly, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you.